from Virginia Humanities. This is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today we're rebroadcasting a special holiday episode hosted by Kelly Libby. Hey there, I'm Kelly Libby, one of the producers at With Good Reason. I'll be your guide for the next half hour, and I'm going to admit something. You're going to hear me drink on the job. Because in this episode, I'm talking and tasting Virginia craft spirits. So when you think of whiskey, you might think of Kentucky or Tennessee. But some say Virginia is the true birthplace of American spirits. We'll go back to the colonial era a bit later and sip some local craft spirits. But we begin in Richmond at the First African Baptist Church, where I've set out to learn about a man who long ago invented a mint julep. His name is John Dabney, and he was a caterer in the late 1800s. Hello. Hi. Dabney was a formerly enslaved man who rose to culinary fame, cooking dishes like canvas back duck and terrapin stew, and even serving one of his famous juleps to a British royal. This evening is the third annual Dabney Dinner, part of the Fire, Flower, and Fork Food Festival. And before dinner, we hear a talk in the church sanctuary by Michael Twitty, author of The Cooking Gene. Richmond is a really potent place for me. because when I was Twitty tells young, us that from Bojangles to KFC, mom-and-pop places to fine dining institutions in cities like New Orleans and Savannah, Southern food, food in the tradition of John Dabney, is an international multi-billion dollar industry that started right here in Virginia. And it was forged in the hands of enslaved people and free people of color who, who took elements of European, and by European we mean British and German and French, and elements of Spanish cooking, Irish, Scots-Irish cooking, elements of Native American cooking, from the Algonquins to the Muscogians, from the Cato speakers to the Suans, it was all there, to elements from West Africa and Central Africa and Southeast Africa. 50, 60 different cultures being melded in the hands of these people for whom the blood of all of those nations flowed. They were not a monolith. They created something here, here in Virginia, that went to the rest of the South. The reason this food went to the rest of the South was forced migration, the domestic slave trade. And because of that, Southern food walked with them. Why do you think everybody fries chicken and has country ham and has biscuits and beaten biscuits and turnip greens? And the menu is the same from the Eastern shore all the way down to East Texas. Why is it pretty much the same? Because those are the same people bringing the same food. And they brought it on foot, they brought it in their heads. Cooks were considered especially valuable. I mean, if you look at those awful list of prices with human beings next to them, twelve fifty for the cook, seven fifty for a hand. That tells you something. These are the gold star Cadillac human beings of slavery and capitalism in America. Because they have a talent that can go anywhere that can impress upon people a certain quality of life that the South had to offer. John Dabney, the man we're honoring with a dinner this evening, had been enslaved for 41 years by the end of the Civil War. By the 1870s, he had opened a restaurant with his wife Elizabeth and was catering events at Western Virginia resorts in the summers. Twitty says he hopes we'll all learn more about people like John Dabney. Because this is not about the black ancestors of black people. This is about the African Virginian ancestors of every single person in this room. You would not be avid consumers of Southern food without them. After Michael Twitty's talk, we head down to the church social hall, where the smell of Southern food permeates the room. On one side of the room is a buffet with Southern food dishes like mac and cheese and greens, served by chefs from prominent Black-owned Richmond restaurants. My name is Katrina Mazak, well, Chef Katrina Mazak, and I'm with Vagabond. Right now we're featuring our mustard-glazed ribs and our kale and mustard green mix. My name is Adrienne Milford. I am the catering manager at Mama J's. 
Mama J's is the famous restaurant in Richmond for your local soul food eats. Tonight we have macaroni and cheese along with Vagabond, our sister restaurant, mustard and kale greens and beef ribs. I'm Michael Hall from Spoonbread Bistro. We're serving chicken breast wrapped in bacon with uh, pureed sweet potatoes and our spoonbread. Why is it called spoonbread? It's like cornbread but it's just a little bit wetter. It's actually a Native American dish and you could usually eat it with a spoon. You're supposed to eat it with a spoon. But nowadays, you know, people just eat it with forks or whatever or pick it up and the way we do it, we fry it. But this is, this is just baked right here. Until the organizers of Fire, Flower, and Fork began holding the Dabney dinner three years ago, not many Richmonders had heard of John Dabney. Much of what's known about him is written in memoirs by his son Wendell. Wendell Dabney remembers, for instance, his father's mint julep, that invention of a drink called the hailstorm. The mixture, sugar, water, brandy or whiskey, and a very delicate essence, lost to the world when Pop passed away, was in varying proportions placed or dexterously shaken and poured into a silver goblet having a capacity of one half to one gallon. On top of the ice chunks, the goblet was artistically decorated with flowers. Into the golden liquid, straws were thrust to the very bottom, one deep intake of the breath and a heavenly illusion began a celestial circulation in your system. This is from a new documentary about Dabney that premiered at the dinner. It's directed by Hannah Ayers and Lance Warren, and it's called The Hailstorm. Through coming together for dinner and stories, it's as if a living monument is being created here this evening, one made of prayer, hugs, conversation, and a culinary tradition that spans centuries and continents. That tradition is Southern food. The food is delicious. It's delicious. This is what we would call Sunday dinner. The greens, the sweet potato pudding, the macaroni and cheese. It's a Sunday. Deborah Booker is a member of First African Baptist Church. She's also the church historian. I've been a member all of my life. My mom has been a member all of her life, and she's 86. And Miss Agnes right there, her father was a deacon at the original building. So we have generations of, of families who are still in the church. The food we're eating here tonight mac and cheese, sweet potatoes, greens. It's not unlike the food I grew up eating with my Southern white family. For me, this meal is, like Booker says, Sunday dinner. And what I learned here this evening is that when I enjoy my grandmother's fried okra and sweet potato pie, there are many other cooks, people like John Dabney, I can thank for that. In Dabney's time, distilling alcohol had already become a bit of a science. But in colonial America, it was part of cookery, which meant it was work that most often fell to women. Sarah Hand Meacham is an associate professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University, and she's the author of a book called Every Home a Distillery. She says in the colonial era, women in the kitchen weren't exactly making hard liquor. They are mostly distilling fruit ciders. So they are making distillations of apple cider into apple brandy or plum, sort of raw plum ciders into plum brandy. Um, They would distill from cherries, from quince, from vegetables like sweet potatoes, really any uh, fruit or vegetable they could get their hands on, they would distill it. How did you get into the research? I, many years ago, I saw a little notation in William Byrd's diary. So William Byrd was a planter in the Richmond area, and he made one notation in the sort of peculiar diary that he kept where he said, uh, saw a riot at Sue Allen's. And I knew that was Susanna Allen's tavern in Williamsburg. And so I began to get really intrigued about were taverns run by women, and it turns out that often they were. Um, And then when I started looking at the tavern records, I noticed that some of them seemed to be getting their alcohol from other women. 
And that really surprised me because I had not known that it was women who made alcohol. You mean they were purchasing alcohol from other women? So the wealthier people could make more alcohol than they needed, and they could sell the surplus to the taverns. But tavern keepers also made their own. It was pretty easy to make basic alcohol if you just mashed your apples or your plums or your peaches and left them alone they would begin to ferment. And if you wanted to hasten the process, you could put in some raisins or some sugar, and that would make it a little bit stronger, a little more alcoholic. Um, Before refrigeration and pasteurization of the 20th century, there's no such thing as fruit juice. Any fruit juices sort of naturally ferment. Um, This actually becomes a problem outside where fruit would fall. So apples would fall or peaches would fall and they would ferment and then the pigs would eat them. And there are issues with drunken pigs (laughs) roaming (laughs) plantations and towns. I feel like there's a clever brand name there somewhere the drunk roaming pig, pig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah how did people get recipes for these distilled beverages were they sharing recipes how did people know how to make them a lot of women inherited them from their mothers So some of the few written documents we have from women from early America are these recipe books. Um, But they're also coming over in recipe books and cookbooks from England. So if you look at a cookbook from England from the 17th century or the early 18th century, usually the first one-third of recipes will be for alcoholic beverages. So one of my favorites is Sir Kenelm Digby's cookbook, uh, which if you opened it up, you would discover that out of something like 339 recipes, the first 137 are for alcoholic beverages. And what would some of them be besides just simply distilling They were flavoring wines whenever they could, so they would... uh, take wine and they would flavor it with um, oranges or rose petals. A lot of these alcoholic recipes were for medicine. Um, So a lot of them are, say, for toothache or for colds. Um, They're also using alcohol to clean everything in the house. So they mix it with slugs to cement back together plates. Um, They use gin to clean uh, windows. They add it to blacking to clean fireplaces. They would mix alcohol and honey and sometimes ashes from the fireplace to brush their teeth. Hmm. If you had freckles, you were supposed to use mead, right, a sort of fermented honey to take away your freckles. If you wanted maybe a red wash in your hair, you could uh, blend alcohol with rhubarb to get a a red wash for your hair. Uh, You were supposed to bathe your babies in distilled liquors. It was thought too dangerous to bathe babies in water. And if your husbands lacked energy... You were supposed to take white wine and soak it overnight with hops to give them more vigor. Huh. (laughs) And so then when was the shift from women distilling to men? We really see it in this country during the American Revolution, which is interesting because it's about 100 years behind the same transition in Europe. So in in Europe, men had already taken over distilling. But in America, they still had so much other labor to do. They were saving the men's work for clearing land and for planting. And so they relied on sort of older technologies of having women make these raw uh, ciders. But during the American Revolution, these kind of moving cities, all of these uh, groups of men needed lots of alcohol and they needed it regularly. So the average white man during the American Revolution got seven shots of rum per man per day. And he got extra if he helped to dig ditches or if it was raining. And they got double rations right before they went into battle. Wow. So they were drunk? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've always wondered, you know, we're 
we're calling us always a little bit tipsy. They drank differently than we do, though. They drank really starting at breakfast. So your your breakfast when you woke up, even beginning as a child, tended to be some beer or small ale or some cider, and you drank throughout the day. Um, and some of it was only about 2 or 3% alcohol. So they may have built up a, a tolerance. In that American Revolution, men really got the message that it was men's work, not women's work, to make alcohol when George Washington switched the quartermaster system. So during the war in 1781, George Washington decided that from now on, the army rations for each man would, instead of being cider as they had been, would now become distilled liquors, mostly rum. And so this began to teach the American army that American men drank rum. And that's when we really begin to see the spread of distilled liquor drinking and a lot of interest in the camps about how to make distilled liquors. And these men leave the war, go to their homes, and slowly bring that technology into the home, start bringing the alembic stills into their homes. And what are those stills? What do they look like? The new stills are quite small. So the original stills and part of why the colonies were fairly late to transition to men distilling, generally speaking, was that the stills before, say, 1770 or 1780 were really large. They would take six grown men to carry them. Um, But by 1770, 1780, still is about the size of um, a sort of large... uh, bread box or microwave. And they would be in the kitchen. Actually, they move out of the kitchen. So back when making alcohol was something women did, you would find things like brew tubs and mash tubs in the kitchen or in the dairy, spaces where women could easily check on the contents. But as this work becomes men's work, you can actually see the tools that they needed to make alcohol move. And so suddenly we find uh, the alcohol equipment in places like the barn where men could check on its contents easily. Huh. It's like brewing in your garage. It really is. (laughs) Why is it important to know this history of distilling in early America? One of the things I think is interesting is that we have looked at how other areas went from being women's work to men's work. So People have had a lot of interest in, for instance, why do we transition from female midwives to male doctors? And usually that's a story um, of technology and also real doubts about women's abilities. And that happens and doesn't happen with making alcohol. Um, American men seem to feel like they were really behind Europeans when they discover that distilled liquors are really where it's at and that they're so far behind. And you see them kind of scuttling to catch up in this area of technology. Um, So I was really interested in how we decided that something that used to be part of women's cookery was now part of science. And why was science defined as something that men could do? So looking at distilling gives us a perfect uh, sort of case study. Sarah Hand Meacham is an associate professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University and the author of a book called Every Home a Distillery, Alcohol, Gender, and Technology in the Colonial Chesapeake. These days, not every home is a distillery, but we are having a bit of a renaissance when it comes to craft spirits. Virginia has nearly 60 licensed distilleries, many of them brand new. There's maybe no better way to experience this renaissance than with women, specifically Women Who Whiskey, which is an event held at a distillery in the country near the town of Lovingston, Virginia. Welcome to Hop On Tours. Getting there involves a little bit of a bus ride. And here we are. Then a hop off at a big barn with a band playing inside. Have a nice day. Women Who Whiskey is about two things, women and... Whiskey. (laughs) Whiskey. There's a stereotype about whiskey, right? That it's a man's drink. You go up to a bar and you ask for whiskey neat and they look at you like you have three heads or something. It's like, I don't want it mixed with anything. I don't want ice in the glass. I want it neat. Why do you think it is that it's traditionally thought of as a man's drink? Because it's 
it's hard and it gets the job done fast, I think. <laughs> but don't get it wrong. Women Who Whiskey is open to everyone. Are you are you with this crowd? I am. I'm the DD. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. <laughs> it's so necessary. Events like Women Who Whiskey are just one way distilleries are bringing people in. Many distilleries have tasting rooms where visitors can see how distilling works. I'm Kara King with Ironclad Distillery in Newport News, Virginia. And I'm Ian Blomsky. I'm the founder of Vitae Spirits here in Charlottesville, Virginia. Kara and Ian are two relative newcomers to the business of distilling. And I sat down and talked with them about this rise of craft distilleries. Um, well, actually, in my family, we believe everybody has something called a bourbon gene in their DNA, and my family are um, heavy carriers. <laughs> so my dad owned this really cool old building. It's over 100 years old in downtown Newport News, Virginia. So we um, wanted to pool our individual talents together and try our hand at making bourbon. What's the scene like in Virginia as far as distilleries? Like We, th- we know that Kentucky is a place where you can have tours of distilleries. Is that happening here in Virginia as well? Oh, absolutely. I think there was a loss of connection between kind of what we eat and consume, I would say probably in the 50s and 60s of that sort, as everything kind of became big and centralized. And whether it be the the local movement or whatever, I think people care about that stuff. So therefore, there's kind of a greater interest in like what's going into it and building relationships and knowing the people that are making these things that you're consuming or whatever. And it's a much much more personal interaction than a big nameless multinational corporation. And what is the difference between whiskey and bourbon and scotch and some of these other spirits? Well, all bourbon is whiskey, not all whiskey is bourbon. In order to put bourbon on your label, you have to adhere to six federal laws that were actually instituted in the 60s. Um, The first is it has to be made in America. Scotch, I mean, you can only call it scotch if it was made in Scotland. Champagne can only be called champagne if it was made in France. Bourbon is the same principle. And then it is a corn-based liquor, so your mash bill, which is basically your recipe, has to contain at least 51% corn. Um, You can't add any flavorings or colorings. Tennessee whiskey is called Tennessee whiskey because they actually filter the liquid through maple charcoal, which is a flavoring, so therefore it's Tennessee whiskey, not bourbon. But it is the same process of making it. Um, And then you can only distill it at below 160 proof because anything higher than that, you're basically making vodka and stripping out all that grain flavor. Um, It can't go into the barrel at more than 125 proof. So it's federally mandated to call it bourbon. And there's one interesting part of that too, and and that is that um, it has to be aged in charred American oak barrels. It can only be once. They have to be brand new. So that's why the bourbon industry produces tons of barrels every year, and they're good barrels still. So almost every other spirit in the world is aged in old or ex-bourbon barrels. So tequila, brandy, scotch, all those things, and rum um, are, are aged in, um, in bourbon barrels. So there's kind of a funny connection between the bourbon world with almost every other brown spirit on earth. Yeah. Like, so I, I'm aging rum at our distillery, and that's why I almost always use bourbon barrels. And I get a lot of flavor. Um, but then, like, a bunch of other places want my rum barrels, whether it be whiskey makers or beer makers. And mm-hmm. beer makers are using bourbon barrels all over the place now, too. Yep. Ian, I know at Vitae Spirits, you typically make rum. But today you've brought a white whiskey. It's a collaboration with uh, Champion Brewery here in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, and that's why its name is actually... Champion Brewing collab number one. I would have liked to call. I would have liked to have called it whiskey or beer whiskey or something like that. But once again, federal regulations made it so I could not call it whiskey. Because um, basically, what this is, they gave me about a thousand gallons of their Violator Double Bock beer, and uh, we put it through the still. So basically, it's a beer whiskey. Um, in Germany, it would have been called a beer schnapps, but in America, schnapps are associated with peach and sex on the beach and things of that sort. So I'm not going to call it beer schnapps. Um, But because it came from beer, too, the government won't let me call it whiskey. So I had to come up with a fanciful name, which is Champion Brewery Collab Number 1. Okay, but it's clear. And so it could be mistaken for moonshine. Yeah. And that's what, um, and moonshine is also a little bit of a tough word. 
uh, simply because once on a time, well, in some circles, moonshine simply simply means illegal alcohol. Um, but kind of what's evolved into moonshine on the market is an unaged corn whiskey, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this looks like visually. But coming from beer, there is no corn in it. Um, moonshines often have uh, white table sugar in it, too, and there's, there's none of that. Um, it's all barley. Barley malt, actually. Uh, if you want to taste this, um, I'll let you taste it first, but I kind of have some ideas of what I think it tastes it's like good. and everything. It's so. really good. But it's it's weird though too because you just don't drink this type it, of stuff yeah, that frequently. Um, so this mm-hmm. particular double bock beer, um, as typical for double box, didn't have a lot of hops in it. So when I distilled this, almost no hop flavors came out. But what did come through was all the barley flavors. So like mm-hmm. I was saying, that it often reminds me of of grape nut cereal because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you can taste all this kind of the caramelized roasted grains and stuff yeah. that, that are with it. So. Kara, do you know other women who whiskey? My grandmother is actually she was she was a woman who whiskeyed, um, and I'm embarrassed to say her brand of choice was Old Crow, because they say if you're looking for Old Crow in the liquor store, look on the bottom shelf and then lift it up. It's under there. It's like the cheapest <laughs> is the cheap of the cheap. Um, yeah. So where, where's your grandmother from? She grew, was from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh gets really cold in the winter. <laughs> defense against the cold. And do you remember your first taste of whiskey? Yes, because it was actually in Kentucky, um, and it was Woodford Reserve, which that, I mean, my bourbon gene lit up. And I think, I mean, yeah, I just, I, re- I remember I was like, because I, I always, you know, I think it was ingrained in your head that you're not supposed to like brown liquor as a girl. So I thought, I, I don't like brown liquor. I don't like brown liquor. And then I tasted it, and I was like, wait a minute. This is really good. <laughs> so, yeah, I, re- I remember the exact moment that that happened. Um, thank you, Woodford Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> and what are we going to be drinking from Ironclad? So we only have one product right now that has aged long enough. This is our small batch bourbon. It's four grains, so it's corn, wheat, rye, malted barley. Um, so it is going to get a little bit of a spiciness um, from the rye. But it, it starts off in the palate kind of sweet, and then it'll kind of kick you with the rye at the end. Um, this is aged uh, a little over a year, but we use smaller 15-gallon size barrels because the liquid-to-surface ratio is greater in a smaller barrel. So the liquid inside has a better chance to get in and out of those oak staves um, as the barrel expands and contracts with uh, the weather. It gets a lot of color, and we, we do have a straight bourbon aging. Straight bourbon means it was aged two years or more. Um, and then we also have a four-year-old bourbon going, but that's not till 2021. So you have to have a lot of patience when you're making bourbon. <laughs> but we taste them every once in a while, just dip into the barrel and see how things are going. What's delicious. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. we get a, I get a lot of cherry in the beginning, um, almost like a cherry Coca-Cola flavor, and then um, that spicy rye that... Well, thank you guys. It was fun. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Cheers. 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 (laughs) This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Next up is an encore presentation of a show we did for the holiday season. I hope you enjoy it. For hundreds of years, Carthusian monks in France have been making a special elixir of long life. It's a recipe that includes 130 herbal extracts. Today, we know that elixir as chartreuse, a green liqueur used in cocktails, but also enjoyed straight or on the rocks. The exact recipe remains a secret that only two monks still know. But the art of making elixirs using wild plants is being revived in a new way. There's a shrub that's called deerberry, and it has ghastly tasting fruits. I mean, it's enough to gag a maggot. They're very (laughs) bitter and um, green and crunchy, but we gave it a try, and it is delicious. Later in the show, a multicultural table at Christmas 
So we have a very diverse family. Consequently, our holidays end up being very culturally mixed, not just with Vietnamese influences, but also with African-American influences as well. But first, Christmas may conjure images of bourbon mixed in eggnog or hot buttered rum drinks, but biologist Lytton Musselman is making his own spirits from wild plants. Musselman teaches biology at Old Dominion University, and he's working with a colleague on a guide to making cordials and apertifs with roots, berries, and mushrooms they collect themselves. He's joined me in the studio today to talk about the process, and then we'll have a little tasting. Lytton, you're a biologist. What is it that got you interested in making spirits? I got the idea from my daughter, who had a friend uh, from Romania who made this delicious drink by putting sugar on blueberries, and then after a while adding uh, vodka to it. And I thought, wow, if we could do that with native plants, it would be wonderful. Give me an example of some of the kinds of plants you've tried. Well, here in southeastern Virginia, we've tried all of the blueberries and huckleberries, but also a lot of very non-traditional things, roots, leaves of various fragrant plants. Some of it we have to discard, but we've been very pleased at the results. They're unexpected results, actually, from some of these plants. There's a shrub that's called deerberry, and it has ghastly-tasting fruits. I mean, it's enough to gag a maggot. They, they're very <laughs> bitter and um, green and crunchy. Uh, but we gave it a try, and it is delicious. How many different kinds of elixirs have you made with these various plants? About 150. Take me through the process of making a very simple one. Well, let's take blueberries, for example. Let's say we have two cups of blueberries, and we put these into a container, a fairly flat container, because you want as much of the fruit exposed to the sugar as possible. And then we cover the surface with sugar, and we leave that for five to seven days. You have to be careful that it doesn't begin to ferment because it'll be spoiled. After five to seven days, then we put the, the vodka in, enough to cover the fruit, and we leave it for two or three months. In some of our brews, the best flavor comes after three years. So it's rather like some wines that after time, the brew actually gets better. Have you created a holiday special? We have a holiday special right here, and it is fabulous. It's called an Adirondack blend, and we've uh, collected the various uh, evergreens there and made a mixture, and it is so good at Christmas time. You take a little bit of this sitting around the fire, and it, it's fragrant, it's tasty, it's, there's nothing disgusting in it like there is some of these uh, brews, <laughs> and you know, it just it encapsulates the spirit. But then you also go back, you think of the mountains in the Adirondacks, those beautiful mountains covered with these evergreens and sparkling lakes. You know, it's, it's delightful. Well, I want to see if these can stand up to a professional tasting. So we've invited Jim Raper to join us. He is a food and wine connoisseur and columnist. He's also editor of Old Dominion University's Monarch Magazine. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. You have indeed, of course, tasted many of these over the last couple of years. You've formed a sort of tasting and production partnership. I've had a, a delightful time, and I've been up for it and uh, have learned a lot. Uh, it just means a lot to me to, to know what goes into the, the digestifs I've been drinking for many years, mostly from Germany and France and Italy. Do they stack up to those, or are they just fun and unusual? Well, they're unusual, but uh, in many ways they do stack up. They definitely have the same flavors that I've been getting low these many years from the commercial products I've, I've drunk. You made reference to digestifs. What's a digestif? This is a liqueur that you drink at the end of the meal. Uh, it, it had a medicinal purpose. People thought that they actually did... Uh, keeps you from developing uh, stomach problems, but uh, helps with the digestion, thus the word digestif. We brought in a lot of these different concoctions to the studio, but let's go through just five that, Lytton, you think are representative of some of the variety of what you've been able to make, and then offer them to Jim to taste and evaluate. 
Okay, I suggest we start with our Adirondack blend. The Adirondack blend includes the young leaves or needles of the balsam fir, the red spruce, the black spruce, and they're simply an infusion in alcohol. Now, after about three years, this becomes so mellow and so so rich, has such a breadth of flavor and aroma, it actually gets better as the years go by. The problem is it's so good that hardly any is left after three <laughs> years. Mm. Mm -hmm. Pardon me if I'm uh, slurping here and uh, gurgling, uh, <laughs> but I'm trying to uh, put a little oxygen on this. Uh, this is this is delicious. There's no question about it. The, this is fairly dry, and I think most people would find it too dry. But this could take a simple syrup. This is pure evergreen North flavor. Woods. North Woods. North Woods. I, I agree. I, you know, I don't know much about the Adirondacks, but this even puts me there. So the other ones that we're going to taste is a kind of wild cherry called a choke cherry that's a charming name isn't it which is also from the adirondacks it looks a little light to be cherry but the but when you smell it it smells like a bowl of uh, sour cherries that a lot of us are familiar with unlike the first one it was a little dry and a little uh, like turpentine uh, this one would be just popular with anybody a little mm -hmm. sugar to it a little cherry this is just clear pure cherry essence. Okay, let's move on to the juniper aperitif. We found a juniper tree with cones that were so sweet, we said we need to try this. As you probably know, juniper is one of the main uh, flavoring agents in gin. So this will have a perhaps a kind of gin-like taste. This is a little darker amber than the, uh, than the Adirondack blend. It doesn't have the breadth of flavor to me, Jim, that either the Adirondack blend or the cherry did. It has a very short finish, doesn't it? It's not uh, as deep as, or complex. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree with that. But I think this would be an excellent ingredient in a blend. Mm -hmm. Next, we have a really a lovely plant with a not very attractive name. It really has a marketing problem. It's called chokeberry. And again, this is one of those plants that has a fruit that... You couldn't eat it. It's so astringent. It's like chewing on alum. Mm. That is delicious. And these fruits look like what? They look like little apples, little teeny apples, and they they're they're ghastly. It's like people sometimes. Yeah. You just all you see is that bitter side, and then when you really get to know them in depth, there's something there that's really sweet. Now, the the red color comes from the skins of the apples. Mm-hmm. The color is beautiful. The, the flavor is, has a real cinnamon touch to it. It does. You're picking the better ones. Well, we don't I want do you believe. to be here and gag, Jim, when we're doing this. You have to call 911 because you're trying some of our cordials. Now, we're finishing up with the wild sarsaparilla from the Adirondacks. This bottle is a fairly large bottle, and it's about half full with what looks like roots. Or Those are roots. Okay. Well, you, you know, sometimes with these plants, you have to be careful leaving the actual plant parts in there because they can become bitter. In this case, we're, we're experimenting with this to see... Just how long. How, I mean, you how, want it to get as much flavor as possible as much as without flavor. Uh, right. them going overboard. Huh? I don't think there's much to that. I'd have to agree. This is the weakest one of the lot. Uh, I think maybe those roots need to stay in there maybe another year or so. Well, you know, a lot of these, a uh, lot of these digestifs uh, really got their start. Well, the the first time Americans tasted them were from these guys selling uh, these miracle elixirs from the back of uh, you know covered wagons, you know, and who would come to town and and tell you, you know, drink this for this ailment or drink this for that ailment. When really, what you were drinking was uh, fifty percent alcohol, <laughs> and that's why people bought it. Well, they felt, felt better because afterwards. of the alcohol, and and you felt uh, that uh, you know God would forgive you if it tasted bad, you know. So yeah. and so they put a lot of these roots in there that that made sure that it tasted bad. And so this Jim, is, this is really just classic snake oil. 
This is snake oil. Yeah. And this one is snake oil. I don't know if uh, we particularly like our brews being called snake oil, Jim. Uh, we're not. Uh, snake oil is something that was trying to be foisted on the public. And in your column and on your blog, you rated some of these earlier. One of the concoctions you actually referred to as yucky and dismissed it as rubber tasting. What was that? Do you remember? Uh, trying to think. Uh, I praise so many of the things that they do that uh, I have to take some shots at them once in a while. And there, there was one made with milkweed that tasted like Denny Moore beef stew. <laughs> and then there was another uh, a, a wild berry... Uh, chokeberry not the good chokeberry obviously this was the one that reminded me of like rubber or burnt rubber that's another species in the same genus as the one you just praised that's why we have to try each of these right and to make sure we, we, you can't just say because it's erronea that it's going to be good that would be an erroneous statement i guess you could say <laughs> well Lytton musselman and jim raper this has been delightful thank you for joining me today on with good reason thank you thank you Lytton Musselman teaches biology at Old Dominion University. He's the author of numerous plant guides. Jim Raper is a wine columnist at the Virginian Pilot and the publisher of ODU's Monarch Magazine. Coming up next, candied yams and egg rolls at Christmas. This time of year, people are gathering around the table for the seasonal feast, full of all sorts of culinary delights. But today, many families are a blend of different cultures, each with their own history of festive foods. Dolores Phillips is a professor of English at Old Dominion University who researches how multicultural families deal with holiday foods. And she speaks from personal experience as an African-American married into a Vietnamese-American family with in-laws from both cultures. Dolores, here we are immersed in the biggest holiday season in America, and increasingly a lot of us are cooking and dining with family members from diverse backgrounds. Your family is multicultural. Very multicultural. My husband is Amerasian, Vietnamese, and American, and my brother-in-law and sister-in-law are also Amerasian. Meanwhile, my in-laws are also African-American. Consequently, our holidays end up being very culturally mixed, not just with Vietnamese and American or Asian and American influences, but also with African-American influences as well. So what would you do growing up? Your Christmas meal would be like what? We would eat a ham, a turkey. We would have uh, black-eyed peas and rice, which is Hop and John, which comes to my family from my father's side because they come from Jamaica, then they went up to Canada, and then they came into Philadelphia. We would have greens. We sometimes would have chitlins, which are cooked intestines, not appetizing unless you have had them done correctly. So when you married your husband, who is from? He's actually Vietnamese-American. He was born in Vung Tau which is a small town on the southwestern side of Vietnam. And he came over, his father was a GI. So he came over with his mother and his older brother to Rhode Island in 1970. So he was very small. So that's how we get our, that's how he comes together. He's actually a product of the Vietnam War. How did that change your culinary experience? It, it didn't really change until we were courting because he would bring me over to his mother's house and she would make these wonderful dishes. She would make pho, which is a Vietnamese beef noodle soup and it is fabulous. And we would also have, I don't know what it's called, but this wonderful lotus root dish that you would also eat with shrimp chips, which are these wonderful fluffy fried things. And I hate getting this dish in a restaurant because you only get five shrimp chips and you need <laughs> 50 in order to eat this dish correctly. There's another dish that I would have at my sister-in-law's house and it's called Bun Bo Hue, which is a very spicy beef noodle soup that also has a slice of a ham hock in it. Do you think in some ways you became more invested in his Vietnamese-ness than he was in it? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I wanted to learn how to make these things, especially once I got married. And what I found was that none of the cookbooks I was reading would show me how to make it. They had this aversion to fish sauce. And if you've ever seen a Vietnamese home cook cooking, the bottle is usually upended. That fish sauce is just going in. And when a, when a, an American cook typically is making a Vietnamese dish and they're using fish sauce, typically the rest the recipe will call for a dash or two because the Western palate is not exactly accustomed to the funk of fish sauce. So what would happen is when I would get these cookbooks, it would never give me the acumen that I needed to produce these dishes accurately. You needed a mother-in-law. I needed a mother. I need a mother-in-law and a sister yeah. who is very, very comfortable in teaching me how to cook. So how did you start to incorporate Vietnamese dishes in your holiday tradition? Kind of hard to do when you're, you're mixing in with the rest of your family that still wants turkey, ham, sweet potatoes, macaroni, pies galore. Well, what was happening is actually after I married my husband, even right before we got married, we would go over to his brother's in-law's house, and they're African-American, and they have an extended, extended family. So what would happen is everybody has to bring a dish or two, and my mother-in-law would bring egg rolls with her that were basically done very simil similarly to chai ya, which is the very small Vietnamese spring roll. She would also bring potato salad, and she would bring fried rice with her. And the reason she brought these dishes was not as much to bring her Vietnamese-ness to the table and make sure that she was, re was represented. Instead, it was more along the lines of, I can make 100 chaya in no time flat. And this is easy to make and people love it. And it's easy for me because I know how. And I think that sometimes when we get hung up on the idea of culture, we miss the role that our personal preferences and individual tastes can play in what we find on our tables. I mean, how much of the love of chaya is simply they taste wonderful? And how much of it is, I recognize your difference and I want that at my table? How much of our desire for a certain kind of Christmas culinary tradition is born of what we're missing and what we long for, as opposed to what is actually here on the table. I have a story that comes to me from one of my mentors, and her name is Merle Collins. There's a young girl, and she's watching her mother cook the Christmas ham. And the Christmas ham is one of those horrible dried ones that you have to soak and soak and soak before it becomes edible. As she's cooking it, she cuts the corner off the ham and throws it in the pot. And the girl looks, she's very small, and she says, why do we do that? We eat it anyway. Why is it going there? And the mother says, well, I think we've always done it that way, and that's why we do it. So then she began to think, why do I do this? Where did this come from? So she calls her mother, who is a first-generation Jamaican immigrant, and asks her, so we always cut the corner off the Christmas ham. Why do we do that? And the mo the, this mother says, I don't know. We always just done it, did it that way. It's what we do for Christmas. Stop asking me. And then she starts <laughs> thinking, I wonder why we do that. So then she asks her mother, who still lives in the islands, why do we cut the corner off the Christmas ham? And this mother, who is very elderly, she says to her, I'm not going to reproduce the accent. You know that pot that your grandfather got me was always too small. So I always had to cut the corner <laughs> off the ham to make it fit. So how much of that food tradition then becomes cultural because of the fact that it ends up moving from place to place? How much of it is, I did this because it's what I know, and then when I move to a different area, it, become, it takes on this cultural sheen, this cultural glamour. So all these forces come together to create either a sense of longing, a sense of belonging, a sense of desire, a sense of hunger. And it's these hungers that we sometimes feed by putting certain things on our tables. It seems like the food that we bring represents so many different facets of who we are and what we aspire to be. Well, it's an interesting point that you make because my nephew and my niece are 100% Vietnamese. Their household sometimes has trouble I guess, enacting the holiday or performing the holiday would be a more accurate way to put it. Rather than create a hybrid holiday, she has me. And what I do is for holidays, I'll go over to her house and I'll either bring with me dishes that I prepared or what I'll do is I'll prepare them in front of her and we'll teach each other. So normally she's teaching me how to actually do things and make things and fry things and boil things and broil things. She's teaching you Vietnamese yes. cooking. She teaches me that kind of, of culinary lexicon, that culinary vocabulary. 
And you're teaching her the culinary vocabulary of mac and cheese? Of mac and cheese and mashed potatoes. <laughs> and it's interesting because where what I bring is curiously American, what they don't quite get is that it's also African-American because I do cornbread stuffing and I bring with me collard greens that I might have cooked or that my father might have cooked. So what that tells me about culture is that culture arises in conditions of difference where two people from different areas or different places come together and through their friction, they create culture. So what about you? This holiday season, whether it's the main meal or in those days leading up to it or just after, what sort of foods do you look forward to? Oh my God, what don't I look forward to? We're going to have turkey. We're probably going to have another ham. We're probably going to have the usual delicious macaroni and cheese. We'll have fluffy white potatoes. We'll probably have some candy yams that are thick and encrusted with sugar and spices and butter dripping all over everything. I'm going to have a butter-soaked holiday. (laughs) Dolores Phillips, thank you for sharing your insights with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Dolores Phillips is a professor of English at Old Dominion University. Have a banana, Hannah. Try the salami, Tommy. Give with the gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Everybody eats when they come to my house. I fix your favorite dishes, hoping this good food fills ya. Work my hands to the bone in the kitchen alone. You better eat if it kills ya. Pass me a pancake, man, drink. Have an undervy, Irving.